Um, we had, how many of you have already had a Christmas celebration of some kind? All right, some kind of family Christmas celebration. All right, we had the Larson family celebration yesterday um, here in Goodlettsville. Mom and Dad are over here, right there with us, and so they came in for the celebration. And, and we down and got picked up my brother and niece and brought them back. We had a celebration here. And, and last night, while we were driving back, we had kind of a moment. It was uh, my mom and, and myself and my brother and my niece in the car, and we were riding together. And as we were riding together. Um, Song came on that immediately brought back nostalgic feels. It's from quite possibly the greatest Christmas album in the history of mankind. It's a small statement I'm going to make. And it just reminded me of being a child. When you were, when I was a child, we didn't have these music streaming services where you could have a playlist of 400 of your favorite Christmas songs. We had four Christmas cassettes. One in each car, one in the bathroom, because we had to have music in the bathroom for some reason. It was there, I don't know. And another one. And this was my favorite every year. Anybody want to guess what my favorite Christmas album growing up would be? None of those. Wasn't the Chipmunks. I had some Chipmunks. I had Chipmunk rock albums, all right? I had some Chipmunk stuff. It is a song. The song last night was called With Bells On. By the Tennessee treasure, Dolly Parton. How many of you know this album right here? Spot it. Some of you need to Spotify it today. Right? I believe in Santa Claus with bells on. Right? Christmas without you. Kenny and Dolly at the height of it. I don't know if y'all know this. Dolly's back. Dolly's had a, there's a Dolly-sance going on, right? Or a Dolly resurgence happening, right? And so we were listening to this last night and it reminded me the impact Christmas music can have, right? That even, even stuff that, I mean, obviously the hymns and the traditional songs that we sing in church have this emotional impact, but even Christmas songs that are outside of that have some nostalgic feel. But at the same time, I have to admit, there's a song on there or two that isn't great. And there is some Christmas music, not Kenny and Dolly, not them. There is some Christmas music out there that's bad. Can I get an amen in the house of the Lord? There's some bad Christmas music. And I was thinking about this. Why is it that there's, I mean, not that there's not bad music kind of all around, but why does Christmas seem to have some bad songs? Well, first of all, it's because everyone feels like they're qualified to do it. Right? Everybody puts out a Christmas album at some time in their career. It's at that time, you know. Um, for instance, people that you wouldn't imagine putting out Christmas albums have put out Christmas albums. And if you have either one of these next two albums, I apologize for putting them on the screen, and I'll pray for your soul, all right? We have David Hasselhoff. The Night Before Christmas. I mean, doesn't that just say holiday love for you right there? All right? Or this is my least favorite, and Duck the Halls. Now, I'm not saying anything about the Robertson clan, but did we really need a Duck Dynasty Christmas album? No, we did not need that. Yeah, we do not need that. Uncle Cy sings on it, and it is exactly what you would imagine Uncle Cy sounding like. It is horrible. If I am almost, I'm convinced... That if Duck Dynasty can do a Christmas album, I can do a Christmas album. Because <laughs> it, it sounds about like I would singing, alright? Alright, get, get, get the Robertsons off, alright. 
First of all, everyone know everybody thinks they can do it. Secondly, sometimes the songs get kind of icky, sentimental, right? A little too sugary or silly. Now, some of them are adorable bad, like I want a hippopotamus for Christmas. You don't like that song? What are you talking about? Nobody thinks, you know what, in June I'd love to hear that hippopotamus song for Christmas, right? Some of them get really sappy, sicky sweet. Like um, there's a guy named John Acuff who wrote this about a particular song that he, he said that if there are five ways that you can survive this particular Christmas song if it comes on the radio. Um, the song is Christmas Shoes by News Song. He says, if it comes on the radio while you're driving in a car, don't forget to tuck your shoulder when you open the door to roll out into the street. <laughs> what about your car, you say? You can always buy a new one, but you can't unhear the song. Y'all know the song I'm talking about? The Okay. Some of you are really mad at me right now. That's okay, because you like the song. Secondly, don't try to negotiate with it. Much like fear, the Christmas shoe song cannot be beat with logic or rational thinking. Don't waste time with questions like, where is the kids died? Why shoes? Why not a dress? Why not a delicious bowl of queso? Has any eight-year-old boy ever successfully purchased women's shoes in the history of mankind? That's Forget trying to make it an acquired taste. This song isn't like algebra. It doesn't get better once you get used to it. Don't think listening to it on repeat. This is John Acuff. This is not me. I'm just reading his writing, all right? Don't think it'll solve your problems. And then he says, lastly, stop being friends with people who say it's not a bad song. They're wrong. They have terrible judgment and prefer unfrosted Pop-Tarts as well. (laughs) Just stop doing life with them. So there's good and there's bad, right? But we all have an emotional connection to Christmas songs. I want today to finish our series on, you think, how in the world are we getting back to this? We're getting there. I want to finish our series on 23 and Jesus, talking about one of the most ancient songs about Christ that we have. Now, we don't sing it anymore. We don't know the tune of it, but it is a hymn written to Christ. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Colossians chapter 1. You think, we've been in Matthew. We're going to be in Matthew for a moment, but we're going to go to Colossians chapter 1. Because at the end of Matthew's genealogy of Jesus, at the end of him listing all the relatives of Jesus, he gives us this last phrase. And Jacob fathered Joseph. And we talked about this last week briefly, and I told you we would come back to it. But it says, Jacob fathered Joseph. And then it doesn't say, and Joseph fathered Jesus, because Joseph didn't father Jesus. Jacob fathered Joseph. Every other one in the list of the names listed says, David fathered Solomon, Solomon fathered Rehoboam, Uzziah followed Jotham. Um, After the exile, Sheltel followed Zerubbabel. Like every one of them, and that is the phrase. But when Matthew gets to the end, he says that's not what happened with Jesus. And in Scripture, whenever they veer off course from what's been happening, it must ring bells in your mind to say, what is being said here? Now, you and I all know that, but if you were a Jewish person reading this for the first time, you would say, wait, 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 what happened here? Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who was called the Messiah. 
The title Messiah given to him is a Jewish title. But the point Matthew is making is in the middle of this to say Jesus' birth was unlike any other birth in the history of the world. And we know from other Gospels that the Holy Spirit would come, that the angel would announce to Mary, that the angel would announce to Joseph that even though she was a virgin, she would have a child, that it would be conceived in her, that there was something different about Jesus. And that's because Jesus is humanity encapsulated. He is 100% human, but more than that, he is 100% divine. And in Colossians chapter 1, it tells us what that means. Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 15, says this. By the way, what we're about to read, most scholars believe, is an ancient hymn, a song that they would sing in worship, And as he does, as he says it, he reminds us of who Christ is. 15 says, he is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn over all creation. So we look first at that first phrase, the invisible God. We know that God is invisible. He is spirit. He does not have flesh. He is not like us. And so the question becomes, if the human eye cannot see him, if we cannot touch him, if we cannot feel him, how can we know him? How can we perceive him? How can we understand him? And scripture teaches us that one of the ways that we understand him, the primary way we understand him, is that Jesus is the image of God. He is the representation of God. And you say, but wait a minute. I know in theology, and you'll talk about this sometimes, Pastor, that it says that man was made in the image of God. So does that mean Jesus is just like us? We're made in the image of God. But that's not what he says here. There is a difference in the Bible. There is a difference in understanding between being made in the image of God and being the image of God. To say that we are made in the image of God means that there are some things about us that resemble God. But we are not on God's level. Our personalities, our rational way of thinking, our relational abilities. We are made in the image of God. We are similar to God in those ways. But God is still way above us. When it says here that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, it means he is the exact representation of God. He is God. Hebrews 1.3 says that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Exact imprint. All that God is, Jesus is. If Jesus weren't fully God, he wouldn't be the exact representation. We're made in the image of God. Jesus is the image of God. God is Trinity. This is deep stuff to get into on Christmas week, right? God is Trinity, which means he has eternally existed in three persons, but is one God. He's not three gods. That's a heresy called polytheism. He's not one God who puts on different hats at different times. That's an ancient heresy called modalism. He's not one God that is subdivided into three parts. That's called partialism, an ancient heresy. He is one God, three persons. That's why there are no good analogies for us. No good analogies for us. And I know we try to use analogies to try to figure it out and to think about it. And a few weeks ago, Ava, Ava has been asking me questions about this whole, um, this whole dynamic of the Trinity as a seven-year-old. She understands it about as well as I do, to be honest with you. It's because 
It takes a child's mind to have faith, to trust that Jesus is who the Bible says and to know it without trying to get too involved in an explanation. But she said, hey, I heard somebody say that, that, that Jesus is God and that God the Father and God the Son, the Trinity. I hear all of those kind of talked about. She said somebody described it like the fact that they were a, a mom and a sister and a daughter. She said, the problem with that, Daddy, is you're a husband and a daddy and a son and a preacher. Which means I'm more than the Trinity in her eyes. You can't explain it. We aren't tried to, the Bible never defends it or tries to explain it. It just states it. Now, here's kind of my understanding. When the Bible doesn't try to explain it, I won't be able to comprehend it if I could. But I trust it. In John 1, 1, Jesus is called the Word. Early theologians trying some way to explain the concept said, The Father is like the mind that conceives the thought, the Word, the expression of that thought, and the Spirit, the voice that carries the thought along. He is the image of the invisible God. Then it tells us He's the firstborn over all creation. And sometimes... Go back. There we go. Sometimes people see that and say, firstborn, that means he was born. Like, my firstborn is Eli. But that's not what is meant here. And this language, firstborn, could have two meanings. One would literally be the first one born. Or it could mean a position of inheritance, the one that was there. For example, Isaac was called Abraham's firstborn, even though technically Ishmael was. The same with Jacob and Esau. In this case, what it means by firstborn over all creation, it means first position. The verse continues in verse 16. It says, For by him, Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth. The visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Jesus is in the position of the firstborn. All creation was made by him and for him. Artists say that in every great piece of art, there is a piece of the artist's soul in that. You can get to know the artist looking at the art. That's how creation is. That The creation that Jesus was a part of creating, the one that was in the position of creating it, Jesus is the one, it tells us, that was creating, that we can see the glory of the God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit through creation. We can look at the world around us and be awed by it. C.S. Lewis said the created things are meant to point us to the creator. And if we cling to the things that are created, they will betray us. It only came through them. And what came through them was a longing. That when we see something of beauty, we have nostalgia about our childhood. When we look to something else for God, we will not see it. Because the created can never represent the creator fully. Everything was created in him. All things have been created through and for him. Verse 17. And he is before all things. And by him all things hold together. I want you to think about just for a moment. The immense power and wisdom it takes. To hold together the entire universe. Some of you over the last couple of weeks were just like, I don't know how we're going to make it to Christmas. I don't know that I can hold it all together. Jesus is the one that holds the entire creation together. Physicists are still in the process of trying to figure out how an atom holds together. 
The nucleus of a common atom has about, or like an oxygen, it has eight protons. Some of you remember this from school. What charge does a proton have? Positive, all right, there you go. Our youth that have been taking exams are on top of that, all right? So in the nucleus are eight positive protons and eight neutrons. What do neutrons have? They have no charge, all right? And so you've got protons, and then in the middle you've got this positive and neutral energy. Nothing in nature says that they ought to stick together. Like charges do what? Repel. There is some negative charges, but it's on the outside running around in electrons. In fact, in the 1920s and 30s, scientists discovered that there's a power lurking in the atom holding all the protons and the nucleus of the atom together called nuclear force. It's mysterious. They don't understand it. They also found out that when they fired protons into it, it would release an incredible amount of energy. The power that holds the nucleus together can be released by shooting something into it, but they're still not quite sure how it works. They give it names that sound like science fiction names because they really don't understand what it is. They talk about quarks and gluons. And I'm not saying that there's not a natural physical principle built in the atom that keeps it together. I suspect there is created by the creator. I'm just saying that just like there is a mysterious invisible power behind the atom, there is a mysterious power in all the universes that is being given through Jesus to hold life together. And if he is the center of what holds life together, our lives will fall apart when he is not the center of our lives. He is the firstborn. It's by him. It's for him. It's about him. He's there in the beginning. He writes the story in the middle. He will bring it to its ultimate conclusion and be there in eternity for the end. Verse 18 says, he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. Firstborn from the dead. In Jesus we get a glimpse of what we, the creation, will be in the future. For those of us that are followers of Jesus Christ, we see in him a physically resurrected body who ate, talked with friends, flew, walked through walls. I don't know if that's what your concept of heaven is. Guys eating together, flying around, walking through walls. But that's what it says. We see in Jesus what God is making in us. Bible says that in his uh, original state, when he came as a human, Isaiah talked about this, there was nothing in him that would draw things to him. He was not a physically impressive person. No form or comeliness, no overtly strong or athletic, just average. Yet when he was raised, he was glorious and beautiful and could walk through walls. That is our future. It also says that he's the head of the body, meaning that he is the source of life. So the closer we are to him, the more life flows in us. And it says that in everything he might have first place. That's our application. We're going to get there in a minute. But that's the truth. Because of who he is, he deserves first place. Verse 19, it goes on to say, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The Greek word there is pleroma, and it means all of it. 
This is all as in all, not part, not God pie, three portions of it, not three equal parts, not two parts. This is all of it. In Jesus, the fullness of God, of God, every bit of him was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven or in earth, making peace by the blood of the cross. Christ died for us. Christ died to bring us life. Christ did this for you and for me. And then verse 21 and 22 say this. Once you, and this he's talking to a church, he's talking to us that are believers, were alienated and hostile in your minds, expressed in your evil actions. But now, but now, he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy faultless and blameless before him. Paul says that the unbelievable nature of who Christ is, he came as a baby who would grow as a savior, give his life on the cross as the perfect sacrifice for you and for me and be raised from the dead for our victory. Paul says, this is what I have in Christ, and this is what you do as well. And it makes him burst into praise. This Christmas, as we enter into a time of thinking about the baby in the manger, let us be in awe of what he's done and who he is. And may it cause us to reflect on our own lives. And push towards making him. It says there that he is to be first in all things. Is he first in your life? Another way to say that is he preeminent. That's a one translation of that. Is he tops in your life? And there are four areas that we need to make him tops in our lives and then we're done. The first is may Christ be first in our worship. Paul can't talk about these things without bursting into a hymn. It's like he is talking about, he's thinking about it, and the words of this hymn that he's been singing, the words of this praise song that he's been singing, the words of this worship song starts to just flow out. And it's not something he did once a week. His life exploded with praise. And as we think about Christmas, I want us to worship the mystery of the incarnation, to let it overwhelm us. To think about what Philippians chapter 2 says, that even though he was equal with God, he did not consider that something to be grasped onto, to be held onto, but became obedient and became like us, became one of us, and became obedient even unto death on the cross, so that he might be lifted up for the glory of God. And he did that for you and for me. As one theologian put it, as the Son of God, He could feed 5,000, but He came as the Son of Man who became hungry. And He came so that He could say to you and me, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. As the Son of God, He turned water into wine, but as the Son of Man, He was thirsty, so He could say to you and me, whoever thirsts, let him come to me and drink. The water that I will give him will become in him a well that springs up in eternal life. As the Son of God, He spoke the worlds into existence. As the Son of Man, He grew weary, so He could say to us, come unto me, all you are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. As a son of God, he dwelt in the palaces of glory. As a son of man, he was born in a stable, grew up in poverty with no place to lay his head so that he could promise me an inheritance that could never be taken away. 
Though he was rich for my sake, he became poor. That I through his poverty might become rich. He took the stable so that he could prepare for me a mansion in glory. As the son of God, he was adored by the angels and the perfections of his holiness. But as the son of man, he was condemned by Pilate, scourged by whips, scorned by man. He became sin when he had no sin. To bring me forgiveness. As we think about the baby in the stable, we remember that his first coming, he came in humility. But the second time, he will not. Because he is king of kings and lord of lords. He is coming again and every eye will see him and fall immediately upon their faces in worship. And for those of you in this room that may not have a relationship, you've never accepted the salvation that comes from Jesus Christ. That moment could happen at any time. And as it comes to that place, when that time comes, the question is, have you made him first in your life? Have you accepted him as your savior? But when you think of all that, how does it not make you burst into song, into worship? Paul says, listen to this, you who were once alienated and hostile in your mind, doing evil deeds, you who were far from God, you have been reconciled because of what he did for us. Praise be to God. And our lives ought to be filled first with worship for him. Which flows kind of directly out of that is not only in our worship, but may Christ be first in our affections. Matthew 6 says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. Life works best when we live according to the Creator, when we focus on what we gain and our affections toward Him, not what we might be missing out on. How much is Christ treasured in your life? The parable tells of a, uh, Jesus told a parable of a guy who found a buried treasure and went and sold everything he had to buy the land because he wanted the treasure. What are you willing to do? What do your affections say about how you live for Christ? Thirdly, May Christ be first in our story where his purpose is better than our purpose, that his kingdom is more important than mine, that his story is more important than mine. In our pain, I pray that Christ would be first. In our blessings, I pray that Christ would be first. And how I spend my time, I pray that Christ would be first. And how I spend my money, I pray that Christ would be first. And how I treat other people, I pray that Christ would be first. And what I say yes to, I pray that Christ would be first. And what I say no to, I pray that Christ would be first. In every aspect of the purpose of my life, I pray that I would think of my purpose in Christ first. And then the last thing, and this is my prayer for us as a church going forward. May Christ be first in our church. May the focus never be on us, but on Him. May I never preach a message to make myself look good, but I may preach always to exalt the Savior. As we plan, may our plans be about Christ. In your Sunday school classes, may your weekly meetings, your gatherings, your time together, your living life together, may it be all about Christ. May our prayers be about the glory of Christ. May our giving be about the glory of Christ. May our worship services be about the glory of Christ. Not our personal preferences or what sounds good right now or what we're really enjoying. May it be about the glory of Jesus Christ.
Because he deserves all of it. He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and in earth. The visible and the invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things. And by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning. The firstborn from the dead. So that he might come to have a place first in everything. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him. And through him to reconcile everything to himself. Whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood and on the cross. Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds and expressed in your evil actions. But now, Jesus has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. Praise be to God. Let's pray together.